9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. We are joined today by Richard Haas, who is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Richard is also the author of many books. Uh, Last year, he came out with one called The World, A Brief Introduction, which is now out in paperback, and I recommend it strongly. It is one of the best books, not only for folks who are interested in foreign policy, like all of you who who listen to this podcast, um, but for everybody you know who isn't up to speed on foreign policy, because it allows you in a single volume to really get a sense of where things are, Uh, And in addition to Richard, we are joined by our friend and our regular, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hello, Richard. How are you? Good, David. And thank you for your generous introduction, though. I do ask, I have one question, which is you said this is a special edition of your pocket. Do you say that every week or is it really special? No, this is special. And uh, well, you know, Ed is on our podcast, has been every week for four years. Does this feel special to you, Ed? It feels very special. Be reassured, (laughs) Richard. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, just I, I hope you I hope that makes you um, feel better. Um, you know, one of the things that should also make you feel better is you wrote this terrific book, um, which really frames sort of all the aspects or sort of all the moving parts of how you know international relations work today, starting back in 1648 and Treaty of Westphalia and the rise of the nation state to what's driving each region of the world. Um, but you wrote it and it came out in, I think, March of last year. And, you know, the world was smacked immediately with um, COVID. And, you know, as I look back on the book, it strikes me that, you know, the book was prescient because COVID illustrated almost every point you made in the book. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if, if that was your reaction to it as well, having written it. Well, that's generous. I talked about the possibility of a, of a pandemic, and that was because it's baked into the cake of globalization. It seems to me one of the real lessons of recent years is that what happens anywhere can matter everywhere. Nothing stays local uh, for long. And whether you're talking about terrorism or climate change, or pandemics, you know, uh, infectious disease, things, things spread like wildfire. So it was a question of when something like this would happen. I didn't you know, necessarily predict this degree of uh, devastation. Though also one of the lessons of the last year, David, and you know this as well as anybody, as does Ed, is that the unevenness of the devastation, that this happened, and uh, we can talk about more of it, but what's so interesting to me is uh, the quality of the response uh, in many ways, and it wasn't based upon the, the nature of the system. We had successful and failed democracies, successful and failed populist or authoritarian systems. Uh, but, I, but I'm struck by, the, by the, the gap in performance, if you will. If I can allow myself one quick follow-up to that edit before I turn it to you. 
Um, one of the things that is striking about it is in the book, you talk a little bit about the changing role of the United States and you know, both in terms of diminishment of its role, but also in terms of its ideal role. And I think that was illustrated well in the book too, because you had the Trump administration, which essentially withdrew, turned its back on multilateralism, was seen as a laggard and a contributor to the problem. And now in, in, in a period of remarkable period of five months, um, the Biden administration has come in and, you know, you can, we can talk about other aspects of it later, but in terms of COVID vaccinations, plugging back into COVAX, plugging back into the World Health Organization and being seen as a leader, there's been almost a complete reversal. Look, let me unpack that in a couple of ways. I think what the last year shows is a few things. One is uh, we already knew about the revival of great power competition. But yeah, it highlighted the salience, the significance of global challenges. And you're right, the, the, the pulling back of the United States in a dramatic way from its traditions of leadership under the Trump years uh, was one of the things that added so significantly to, to global disarray, to use my other favorite word. I think the Biden administration gets high marks on COVID domestically for uh, amping up production, for vaccination where I do not give it high marks and I, I, I'm, I'm really frustrated and still somewhat mystified is why the United States is not doing more to vaccinate the rest of the world. Here at home, we have a, a supply, we have plenty of supply, not enough demand, just the opposite in the rest of the world. We can and should be doing more and it would help us in terms of dealing with potential variants or mutations. It would help the rest of the world politically, economically get back on its feet. So with that one minor exception, or not so minor exception, I would give us high marks. Yeah, no, fit, uh, definitely fair point. Something we've talked about a lot. Ed. Uh, thanks, David. And congratulations, Richard, on the, bringing the paperback out. I, I was, well, I will later ask you uh, a specific question about the book, which I, I do want to get into. But um, just to follow up on David um, and COVID and how that's impacting what you wrote about and what we're all looking at in the world today. A lot of people have observed, I think with some reason, that COVID didn't change the world so much as accelerate it, accelerate pre-existing trends like the digitalization, or you just mentioned great power competition. Um, there are many ways in which you can see it's just intensified and brought forward trends that were already there. Um, do you think that's true? And if it is true, is that, is that a, a threat or an opportunity? I do think it's true. And if I may be permitted a self-referential moment, uh, I'm the people who first wrote that in Foreign Affairs. It was the article about that the pandemic would prove to be less a transformational moment than an accelerant. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. It basically brought into fairly sharp relief a lot of trends we were already seeing in uh, the world. And the reason I don't think it's largely transformational, Ed, is we will get back to something that resembles what existed before in the United States economically pretty quickly. China, uh, most of Asia, pretty quickly. Other parts, uh, much unfortunately, more, more slowly. And there could be significant political uh, implications. There's a, a, an election, say, coming up in Peru very shortly. And in part because of the economic and social implications of COVID, it could lead to a very different kind of outcome. We'll have to see what India, you know so much better than I do. We'll have to see what ultimately happens uh, there as a result of, of, of their mis mishandling. But I do think this has been a, a big event, a tragic event. 
but probably not one that changes uh, the, the, the tectonic plates of China's emergence, Russia's alienation, America's division, the power of global challenges. I think, I think that in some ways is surprisingly constant. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, if David, if you permit me to ask the question about the book that sort of uh, underlie all, 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 all the sort of other questions that might flow um, that I would want to ask you today is your book is very deliberately, specifically not written for the foreign policy specialist. It's written for students, generalists, people who are interested, people who need crash course. And your one of your premises is that we just don't know enough. We're more ignorant today than we used to be, which I think is hard to argue with, even though we've got less excuse because we got the Library of Congress at our fingertips. Um, uh, what do you think uh, would change about American foreign policy if we had a much more informed public and debate? It's a really interesting question. One is I think there would be less tendency towards isolationism because implicit in being more informed is you, you can answer the question why and how the world matters. Now being more informed, I do not think would eliminate or necessarily even reduce what we ought to do about it. And we can have profound arguments about which instrument of foreign policy to emphasize, how do we rank our objectives in the world and, and so forth. That's, that's the stuff of policy debates that the three of us so often uh, traffic in. But I believe the biggest single uh, result of being more literate about the world would be less of a bias towards isolationism, which when you think about it, and out of our two and a half centuries exist, of existence, has been the predominant thread of American foreign policy. It's really the last 70, 75 years that are more the exception. And what worries me, quite honestly, is whether we revert to the, the, the pre-World War II norm. And I think if we're not knowledgeable about the world, that is, that, that is a lot more likely. Well, let me pick up on that uh, and, and again, tie it to something that's in the news. Um, uh, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is in, the, is in uh, Israel today. Uh, he's met with the Prime Minister of Israel. He's met with uh, the President of the Palestinian Authority. Um, and this administration seems to be walking a fine line. Um, you know, last week in the midst of all of this, I, I talked to a bunch of people in the administration and they said one of their primary objectives was trying to contain this issue and keep it from being a distraction to their domestic agenda. Um, but by the same token, you know, the U.S. has a special role to, to, that it has historically played uh, in the Israel-Palestine conflict and um, and, 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 and they don't wanna abandon that. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the question is, you know, can the, the, the US pull back a little bit from the Middle East, pull back a little bit from throwing itself at these problems and, you know, trying to win a, a Nobel Peace Prize like the last administration and others before it, um, and still maintain a leadership role? Do you think they're getting the balance right on that? I think they could, I don't think they're there yet, but I, a couple of reactions. One is whoever you were speaking to, I don't disagree with that. The, the principal focus of this administration's existence is domestic policy. 
dealing with COVID, dealing with economic recovery, and then a large set of uh, reforms to expand, if any, the safety net in our society. It's, it's, it's quite a transformational uh, agenda. With second point is that within foreign policy, and again, I think this is probably right, there's another correction, which is to move away from the Middle East, which is absorb a disproportionate share of America's attention and resources since the Cold War ended three decades ago. And this administration in some ways wants to follow up on the Obama administration's so-called pivot or rebalancing to Asia, and obviously to think about countering China. And as a first approximation, I don't think that is uh, wrong either. And indeed, the two reinforce each other because a big part of that is becoming more competitive here at home. And that has implications for infrastructure, for immigration, and all the lot. Thirdly, I think Tony Blinken is right when he gets up in the morning, should not be thinking about how he brings about a two-state solution. The pieces just aren't there. The situation is not ripe, R-I-P-E, and no amount of time by him or anyone else in and of itself could bring the sides together because they're, they're not willing or able to, to get together. Now, it doesn't mean we should ignore it. Uh, things like Gaza or worse could happen. What they need to think about is what can and should they do in order to keep open possibilities. So if and when leadership that is willing and able to make peace in the Middle East, that they actually then have something to work with. Because it would be tragic if the raw material were to disappear as it has been over the last few decades, given settlement activity and the like, there's, 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 there's less to, uh, to work with. So I think their challenge is more to keep possibilities alive, to think about what they can do to encourage the emergence particularly on the Palestinian side of an interlocutor that would be that would be viable. It's certainly not Hamas in its present form. It's certainly not the Palestinian Authority. It's certainly not the two of them coexisting. Yeah, no, it's an, it's an interesting point. And again, just as a quick follow-up, it seems like the, I mean, neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians, in my view, have a leader who's, who's you know, up to solving the problem or frankly, up, you know, a real accurate reflection of the people as a whole. Uh, in the in the Palestinian situation, um, rebuilding is key, and the trick here is going to be finding a way to support that rebuilding without supporting Hamas. Um, do you have any thoughts on how that's done? Well, some things you can funnel through the Palestinian Authority certain things you can help workers in, who live in Gaza, leave Gaza so they can find them paid employment in Israel. But I would think essentially what you, I would challenge Hamas. I would, and it's something I might write about. I'm thinking and trying to think it through in part based on my experience with you know, my unsuccessful experience in Cyprus, my unsuccessful experience at the US envoy in, uh, in Northern Ireland. But are there ways we can make it more difficult for Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and conceivably even the Israeli government, certainly for the Palestinian side, to be so uh, non-cooperative in peacemaking, to basically try to create a gap between them and the people they claim to represent, because they are not serving their interests. So I think we should find ways of challenging them. And it's not simply about you know how we funnel resources, but I believe we need much more of a public diplomacy game before we could have successful private diplomacy. Yeah, by the way, nothing prepares a person for solving the problems of Israel and Palestine as unsuccessful experiences like the kind you've had around. You know, My career, David, is it's unblemished by success. What can I tell you? 
<laughs> That's because you deal with the hard problems. Ed. Uh, let me uh, pivot to uh, Russia. Um, as you know, Biden's just announced he's going to be meeting Putin in Geneva on uh, June the 16th, I think. So quite a big deal. Um, uh, we're sort of used now to thinking um, more than 100 days into the administration of Russia and China together as autocrats and the rest of the world as not the rest of the world, but, but other countries uh, led by the US as being in the democracy club. If you were a Kissinger or a Brzezinski, or maybe a Richard Haas, you might be thinking about how to prize Russia away from China, or at least give it some wiggle room, assuming Putin does want some symmetry and flexibility on his eastern and western sides. But politics in America, I think, would make that difficult, if not impossible, to do. And probably Putin's own actions, putting troops on the border with Ukraine, etc., would make that difficult, if, if not impossible, to do. But should we be thinking in sort of chessboard terms along those lines? I'm less worried about China and Russia working together than I am about what each is doing. Uh, and I don't think, by the way, this meeting, I don't know if the word summit's going to be applied between President Biden and President Putin in a month or in three weeks, is going to be worthy of the title summit. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot for them to really do. I thought the Blinken-Lavrov meeting in some ways was illustrious. They talk, well, we agree to disagree on, on most issues. I don't think it hurts to pay respect to essentially have diplomats engage in, in diplomacy. Uh, but I think they and China will continue to work together, particularly on protecting their ability to be authoritarian at home. They have very little interest in a, in a liberal order and in institutions or norms that in any way infringe on their, on their sovereignty. In the long run, I think they go more different ways, only because Russia's a, a less multidimensional power. It has you know, the conventional military, it has the nuclear, it obviously has cyber, it may have some energy. China, but China's an economic, China's globally economically present just about everywhere. And as a result, it, it constitutes a really different challenge. But I don't think in the long run they're, they're natural partners. Uh, I'm not sure their economies are that compatible. You've got the large, you got the empty territorial reach of, uh, of Russia. What I think they've both though introduced to themselves, and I don't know if this will surprise you or not, is they've both institute, institutionalized or at least created for themselves problems of uh, succession. What both leaders have done is essentially made themselves, if not presidents for life, presidents for the duration. And the question then is, what happens next in both countries? Uh, what, what, what constitutes legitimacy? Is power handed, well, to whom, who decides, is it violent? And I think both countries have created some problems for themselves, Russia even more than China. Because China still has a party with 90 odd million people. It has institutions, it's got concentrated power. But Putin has essentially deinstitutionalized his country. It is something of a kleptocracy. So I think, uh, I'm less worried in some ways about their collaboration, though at times it'll be annoying. I'm curious in many ways about the, the futures of both countries. And I don't, I don't assume the, the future is somehow an, a, linear, a linear extension of, of, of the present in either case. That's interesting. I have a quick follow-up. I mean, just to stick with the rather, rather hoary old chessboard analogy, if you're thinking of it 
it being a US-China chessboard, that India is arguably the most important piece. Do you worry about the direction in which Modi is taking India? Look, I actually, <laughs> again, we may disagree here. Uh, I think India may be slightly exaggerated as a piece on that chessboard. My own view is uh, whether people talking about the so-called quad or in general, when they talk about India strategically, my own experience with it over the last, what, four decades is that, is that it often slightly disappoints. And the real challenge for India is to be a viable, successful country. If India is a viable, successful country, then China has to take it into account, whatever India's foreign policy orientation is. And I think what's a little bit worrisome about India is what you were getting at the COVID performance, Modi's uh, populism, through some of the pressure or alienation of the 200 million or so Muslims. I think what's been brought into question a little bit is is India's future. And and that worries me, uh, and that worries me there. But this idea of triangular diplomacy with Russia, I think misunderstands in many ways uh, the the challenge coming from China. It's not, comparable to the US-Russia triangle of the Cold War, China's already in. Things that deal with containment and the like and simply emphasize military power, I think are are increasingly uh, inadequate to explain the US competition with 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 with, with China. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting. You talk about triangular calculation, but when I think of each of those cases, the real issue is it's not triangular, it's sort of bipolar in, in within the relationship, in the sense that in talking about China, Tony Blinken has you know talked about we cooperate where we cooperate, we compete where we compete, and we st- you know stand up to them where they are an adversary. This is a similar formulation that they're getting to with Russia. They found some places that they can give something to Russia. I mean, I don't know how you feel about the Nord Stream thing, but you know, they're that's going to be a win for Russia. Uh, there's going to be some area for cooperation and denuclearization, probably. There's going to be some area for cooperation on uh, uh, energy issues, possibly. Um, and in both of these cases, and and you know, by the way, you know, and in Turkey, and in Saudi Arabia, and in India to some extent, and so on, the U.S. has a bunch of interests where that are going to lead us to cooperation, and a bunch of places where. We're going to try to actively oppose them, and and balancing that is the real trick right now. Agree a hundred percent. It puts a real premium on good old-fashioned statecraft, on the the skill of foreign policy formulation and execution, because none of these relationships is is one-dimensional or, or or one directional. And you're right, there's trade-offs. I think we were right as you as you implied on Nord Stream, not because I like what the Russians are doing but it's 98% completed. And at the moment to oppose it now frontally would create many more problems between us and Europe than it would between us and, and Russia. I think there's some things we could usefully do to offset it. For example, how do we maybe compensate Ukraine for its loss of certain revenues? How do we make sure or diminish the chances that Russia could use Western energy imports from it for reasons of leverage? What me, you know, maybe we could have certain standby arrangements. So if Russia ever tries to do that, so I think there's things we can do to to offset it. But I, I agree in both places with Russia, with China. The challenge is going to be how do you sustain a relationship that has multiple personalities or dimensions? 
Russia might actually be a limited participant uh, on dealing with, with Iran. I don't think Russia necessarily wants a nuclear weapon uh, in, uh, in Tehran. China obviously has certain concerns, say, about North Korea, uh, about Afghanistan, which it borders. So the challenge for Secretary Blinken, Jake Sullivan, others is going to be how do you manage these relationships, uh, which are going to take real finesse. And it takes two. It takes the same thing is said for them. And so how do we in some ways it's almost the opposite of linkage, what we all grew up with. So how do you compartmentalize? How do you protect your ability to cooperate on A, B and C, even if you disagree on, on D, E and F? And I think that'll be the foreign policy challenge in many ways for this administration. I'll go to Ed in a second, but I do want to underscore just again um, that Richard's book, um, The World, A Brief Introduction, which is now out in paperback, um, is precisely the kind of thing you need to read to develop a nuanced view of these things, which is the antidote to the black and white view, which as Richard just explained, doesn't work anymore. And you know, you can't, you know, there's a temptation, particularly in politics in the United States, to do this kind of four legs good, two legs bad, you know, China's bad, Russia's bad, who, you know, et cetera. It's just not the case. And you need to understand some history to get there. And that's why I think a book like this, which compactly brings you up to speed on a lot of things, is so helpful. Ed? David, you once again uncannily anticipated my question that you've got this sort of knack a sixth sense um but it does flow from in fact i'm thinking i might be psychic yeah i think you might be even over zoom um uh so richard what i was going to ask you is one of the reasons the russia example occurred to me earlier is you think back to 2012 when mitt romney described it as the number one geopolitical foe and we all well not we all but most of the sort of Obama world and but but beyond poured cold water on him and mocked him really for saying that. Now it's kind of the opposite. The two parties have flipped on Russia. Um, it makes it very difficult to dispassionately assess your interests and pursue the statecraft that you are quite rightly recommending when big foreign policy challenges like this are filtered so sort of um, at such a gut level through the partisan lens and that because that lens can shift 180 degrees as it has on Russia between between Romney and Trump. How do you conduct foreign policy in such a polarized sort of tribalized domestic political climate? How do you adjust it for that? The good news or the relative good news is that it's not as hard to conduct foreign policy in this context as it is to conduct domestic policy in this context, because domestic policy is much more legislatively based. Foreign policy is less legislatively based, and also the executive branch has a lot more discretion or latitude than it does in, in domestic policy. So when you think about the major struggles between the Biden administration and the Congress, they're almost all domestic. Uh, also on foreign policy, as you suggest, is in some areas, for better and for worse, there's a degree of, if not identity, at least some overlap. You mentioned China and Russia clearly in those two areas. I think there's an unfortunate overlap in the area of trade, which neither party seems to be much of a free trader uh, anymore. Uh, there might be some big, big differences on other issues like, like climate. Uh, India, which again, you know, uh, quite a lot of overlap, a lot of sympathy or uh, 
sort of positive thinking about the desire for for closer relations. So, so the, the the partisan wars, or whatever, however one wants to call it, the tribalism of American politics, has not been in recent years about uh, about foreign policy nearly to the extent that it is domestic. And there's some good news in that also, in the sense that for non-Americans, for particularly for our allies, though again not clear, it represents a uh, at least the hope of a degree of continuity. I think one of the really interesting questions on that. Ed, and I was kind of thinking of it as I was talking, is what does post-Trump or the next Republican foreign policy look like? To what extent is it unilateralist, anti-institutionalist, quite critical or transactional at best with allies? Or to what extent is it either more internationalist of some of the Republicans or more like the neocons, more internationalist, but trying to promote democracy and so forth? I think Republican foreign policy is really up for grabs. But at least in the short run, uh, I would think the Biden administration, if it wants to go back into an Iran nuclear agreement, it'll do so. It went back into the World Health Organization and went back into the Paris agreements. Again, in foreign policy, it's got latitude. I think the bigger question is what comes after uh, future American administrations. What is their relationship with the uh, with the world? We've just got a couple minutes. And so it's a tradition on this podcast that with a minute left, I ask a question that would take a month to answer. Um, but, but um, you know, as, as, as you talk about it, I think one of the things that, you know, I, the Trump foreign policy was incoherent in many respects, but one thing it was coherent on was to essentially reject all the fundamental tenets of US foreign policy since World War II. You know, anti-multilateral, anti-building an international system, uh, America first, et cetera, et cetera, anti, you know, alliances and so forth. And the Biden administration has come in and, and is actively trying, as, as you've mentioned, with WHO, with the Paris Accord, with the Iran deal and so forth, to try to undo some of that damage. But it suggests to me, and some of your books suggest to me, that that's not adequate. You know, there, there, there isn't a multilateral mechanism to deal with cyber. There's not a multilateral mechanism to deal effectively with climate. There's not a multilateral mechanism to deal effectively with migration issues. The multilateral institutions that exist were created to be weak. And, and if the United States is going to seek a, a more balanced role, not to be the hyper power that the French accused them of being, uh, and and by the way, consistent with uh, you know essentially the, the the Tony Blinken case that that you know we're we're going to step back from American exceptionalism. It strikes me that we may be at one of those you know sort of present at the creation 2.0 moments. You know that that the 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 system needs a refresh. Do you agree, or is that just you know too much for the world to bite off at the moment? And, and we're gonna sort of have to inch our way in that direction. A couple of reactions. I think one that where the Trump administration got it wrong was in rejecting so much of its inheritance. And unless I'm mistaken as a historian, when I look at the last 70, 75 years for all of the mistakes we made, it was the most successful period of history in the modern era. Look at the avoidance of great power war, Cold War stayed cold and ended on terms favorable to us. Uh, the average lifespan over around the world increased by decades. The colonial era came to uh, an end. Democracy spread. Well, wealth increased dramatically. Not bad. 
not bad. So the idea that you would want to reject that, not obvious to me, to, to, to put it mildly. Where I think the Biden administration has it wrong is to say the United States is back. And it's wrong in two ways. One for the reason you suggested, which is those institutions are, they're even older than we are. And uh, they're not, they're no longer fit for purpose. They were never invented for this kind of world. They haven't kept pace. So global machinery is woefully inadequate. And the United States isn't back. Yes, we've done well dealing with COVID at home, but we're a divided society and isolationism is rampant. There's no consensus whatsoever about our role in the world. So you talked about a president the creation 2.0. Yeah, we need it, David, but I don't see it. I do not see in this country either the imagination and I don't see the political will. I don't see the consensus globally. And that's why uh, I'm worried. Uh, I'm worried that the gap between where the world is and where it needs to be is, is, is large and in some areas is still growing. And that's what gives me pause. Very thoughtful analysis. Although I stopped listening after you said even older than we are. Um, which is just a terrib terribly troubling concept, the way you put it. Um, I, 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 we only had a 30 minutes here, and I, I, I'm really, really grateful that you took the time out of your extremely busy schedule um, to share it with us. And Ed, I'm also glad that you took the time out of your extremely busy schedule to share this with us. It has, in fact, been a special conversation. Uh, and it has been to commemorate the... Uh, 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 a reissuance and paperback of uh, Richard's book, The World, A Brief Introduction. Uh, I recommend it strongly, uh, not just to be read by you, but, but to be shared with everybody that you think needs to be up to speed on the way the world works. Uh, for more about what we've got coming up, go to the dsrnetwork.com. We've got a very, very busy schedule each and every week. And if you hit membership, you can support uh, conversations like this one. In the meantime, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Ed. Thanks to everybody for listening and uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.